Our text this morning is Titus chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. Um, but let's just start at chapter 1, verse 1. We're not going to read verse by verse through chapter 1. We're just going to pick verses throughout it just so that we can gather context to see what's going on. But for those of you that like to write stuff down, Titus chapter 2, 9 through 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, Lord. It would have been enough that you died on the cross to redeem us from our sins and to make us right, to put us in right standing with the Father. But Lord, that you would preserve your own word for hundreds, even thousands of years that we would have them today to know your will. Thank you, Lord, that it is inerrant. We believe that it is truthful in all that it affirms and that it is the unique word of God given from God, from heaven, through the words of man to us now. So, Lord, we want to rightly divide it this morning. We want to tread lightly around it because we know it's your word, Lord, and we want to be taught by the Holy Spirit. So we ask, Jesus, that you would be, as you are to this church, you would be the head pastor. Your word proclaims that you hold all things together, and we ask, Lord, that you would hold this church together and that you would pastor it. We're done with the doctrines of men and the opinions of men. Anything that comes from the mouth of Chris Lazo, we want to be done with that. We want to hear from the Lord this morning. So we ask that you would reign in this place, God, and that all things would be done to your glory, and that you would show us what we need to do. Teach us from your word, Lord. It is the oracles of God, and we believe that with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So you remember a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when Britt was teaching, he was teaching out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He was talking about the Word of God being living and active and uh, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate between the divisions of soul and spirit. Pretty much the, the Word of God is powerful and it's capable of changing your life. The Word of God can change your life whether you're a Christian or you're a, or a non-believer. If you're a non-believer, it gives you the gospel, which is the power of God changing your life forever. If you're a believer, it sanctifies you. Jesus, in a prayer to the Father in John 17, 17, said this, Father, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so it's the word of God that the Lord uses to sanctify us as Christians, to make us more like the Lord. And so one of the statements that Britt made, if you remember, he was talking about the Bible and he was saying, man, when I, when I read the word of God, it's in actuality the word of God reading me. I turn the pages of scripture, but really it's the Bible turning me. The Bible is forming me and turning me in the right direction in the process of becoming sanctified more like Jesus Christ. And so in that message, Britt would show and expound from Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is capable and powerful in the life of a Christian and a non-believer. Amen. A few weeks later, this was last week, Dave Lomas, you remember Dave Lomas? taught out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. He taught how Daniel, at the age of 80, prophet of prophet, probably knew the entire Old Testament by heart. He probably had it down. He knew scripture. He was writing scripture. He was prophesying about the Messiah. And yet, at the age of 80 years old, he's still reading scripture. He's still studying prophecy. And what did he do? He responded to the word of God. And so Brit let us know that the word of God is powerful. And we see in the book of Daniel that it's to be responded to 
for the Christian to be sanctified. And if we really believe what the author of Hebrews says, that it is powerful and it's sharp and active and living, and if we really believe Daniel the prophet that we need to respond to it, then I believe we need to believe Paul who would speak to Titus and say, now you need to know it. You need to know it intimately. And that's what we're going to talk about today, knowing the Bible intimately. I know we know like some of the things that it says. We need to know what it means. We need to know what it teaches. It's not, a, it's not enough anymore that we go by just knowing you know, a verse. You know, I, I John 3.16, I saw that somewhere, bottom of an in and out cup somewhere. <laughs> we need to know the content of the Bible, and we need to know what it teaches more than just what it says. Amen? Amen. So we're going to pick it up in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Like I said, we're not going to read every single verse in this chapter, just what we need to gather context. So let's read that first verse. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is an according to godliness. Stop there. So the purpose of this letter to Titus is for the faith of those chosen by God. Who's that? Who's chosen by God? Us, Christians. So Titus is written for the purpose of the faith of Christians and for the knowledge of the truth, okay? The faith of Christians and the knowledge of the truth. We need to log that into our brain. It's going to become an upcoming theme throughout the book of Titus. The knowledge of the truth. So let's move on to verse 5. He exhorts uh, Titus. Verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay. Paul and Titus are at this church in Crete. Crete is a, an island in the eastern Mediterranean. There's a church there that Titus has been stationed at. Paul has been with him for some time, but now Paul needs to leave. And so he's saying to Titus, okay, buddy, I need to, I need to take off. You know, I got other things like Rome and such. So I'm going to bail. You need to take care of this church as per the word of God commands you to. But there's a situation that has arisen in this church, and you need to attend to it. We don't know what that situation is yet. We'll get it as we go along the text. But Paul then gives Titus guidelines for running the church. And the first thing that he says is, okay, Titus, you're in charge of this church as lead pastor. There's a situation that's arisen in this church that you need to deal with and take care of. The first thing that you need to do is establish leaders in the church. You need to establish a plurality of elders that will govern the church. And then he's kind enough to Titus to give him some uh, qualifications for elders. And they're strict, stringent, hard qualifications. Um, they're the same ones he gives Timothy. He gives them a, a whole slew of qualifications, but we can actually put them into like four groupings. One, qualifications of an elder, they need to be above reproach, right? Second qualification, they need to refrain from the flesh. They can't be fleshly. Se uh, third qualification, they need to be godly. Go figure, right? Be godly, pastor of the church. Fourth qualification, they need to hold fast to the faithful word. They need to hold fast to the doctrines of the word of God. And so Paul is telling Titus, hey, these are the four things, the four categories that the elders of your church need to adhere to. And so we see them in things like in verse 6, speaking of being above reproach. He says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. So when the out, outside world is looking in at the church and they see the pastor, they need to see righteous living, right? They need to see good things. And so he's saying, okay, be done with rebellion. 
Um, your kids, I mean, the pastor needs to live in such a way that he's influencing his own family. And so when you look at the family unit that the pastor has, man, you need to be like, glory to God. Glory to God for that. So above reproach, first thing. Second is to refrain from the flesh, not be fleshly. He says these things in uh, verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. So the pastor needs to be done with these things, these things of the flesh. Thirdly, the pastor needs to be godly. So he lists some positive characteristics in verse 8. Let's read those. He needs to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. pastor needs to be above reproach, not fleshly. He needs to be godly. Fourth, he needs to hold fast to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. Now Paul is going to swing a little bit right here. He's instructing the pastor, okay, Titus, in order to solve this problem, you need to establish leaders that teach the word of God. And now he's going to list reasons for that. In other words, he's going to explain the situation that's arisen in the church in Crete. He's going to say, you need to hold fast the faithful word. If you don't, this is what's going to happen, and indeed, this is what's already happening. So let's pick it up after verse 9, verse 10, excuse me. You need to hold fast the faithful word, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Paul goes on to list examples of this. He talks about Cretans and liars and uh, mythology, Jewish myths and doctrines of men. And he's trying to explain to Titus, listen, man, I'm putting you in charge of this church. The situation in the church in Crete is that whole families are being upset because of myths, because of empty talk, because of chatter, because of false theology, because of rebellion. You need to deal with these things. The first thing that you need to do is stick in a leadership team that lives rightly and that will teach the word. In other words, if you do not hold fast to the faithful word, what will ensue are these things. Rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, families being upset by false teachings. Paul is trying to describe, hey, Anywhere, and I think this is true for our situation as well, anywhere that the word of God is not being adhered to faithfully, anywhere that the word of God is not being preached faithfully as it was meant to be, what will follow is that the vacuum will be filled by false doctrine, by confusion, by theological chaos. Paul is saying, listen, man, you need to preach the word. Wherever the word is not preached, what ensues from that is theological chaos, and you don't want that in your church. This is true for us today. What? This is why we hold to the word of God so firmly in this church. Praise God, right? It's in this church that we believe we need to teach children the word of God. We need to teach junior hires the word of God. We need to teach the high schoolers the word of God. We need to teach the adults the word of God. 
And come September, we're going to teach the college students and 20-somethings the Word of God because that's what Scripture tells us to do. Whenever the Word of God is neglected, there is a vacuum that will be filled by something else. If it's not theology from the pulpit, then it will be something worldly. It'll be theological chaos. And so Paul knows this, and he's trying to inform Titus in the church in Crete. Chapter 2, verse 1 turns to Titus. He says this. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Titus, as for you, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. Starting to see a theme in Titus, maybe? For the knowledge of the truth. Hold fast the faithful word. Speak things fitting for sound doctrine. The theme of Titus is sound doctrine in Christ Jesus. And Paul madly aware of this, is trying to inform a church before they explode, theologically. So he turns to Titus and says, you need to be sound in doctrine. Now Paul is going to turn to, excuse me, to the rest. Paul is going to turn to the rest of the church. That would be the congregation. Everyone sitting in the seats. And he's going to give them direction. What Paul is doing now is he's saying, okay, you need to live according to doctrine. Be sensible, be pure, live rightly, do this, honor this person. And he's speaking to younger men and younger women, older men, older women. So basically everyone in the congregation, everyone in the pews, Paul is talking to them saying, you need to listen up. For you, you need to do this. For you, you need to do that. For this group, you need to do that according to doctrine. Then Paul does this. He steps back surveys the entire congregation and says, okay, now this is for all of you. Are you ready? This is for the entire congregation. Chapter 2, verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, Paul. It's not just Titus, the lead pastor of the church in Crete, that needs to know the word of God. It's not just the elders of the church. Okay, if Paul were here today, this is what he would say. Britt, Merrick, you need to know the word of God, please. Okay, all the staff, everyone in the back, Kiara, Phil Tang, back there, Jobert doing the video camera, the leadership of the church, the staff, you all need to know doctrine. Wait a minute. <laughs> now Paul is saying, okay, in our situation it would be like, uh... Young men, younger women, older men. Older. Oh, that's you. Everybody in the pews, you guys. Paul would say you need to know the Bible, not just what it says, right? Cults know what it says, and they distort it and they twist it. We need to know what it teaches. And so Paul, aware of this, is telling the church in Crete, not just the lead pastor, not just the elders, not just the staff, everybody in the congregation from old to young, Man, woman, boy, girl, you need to know doctrine, and you need to know it well. Amen. Lest we think that we are somehow excluded from this, Paul goes an extra mile. In the preceding verses, he then talks to the bond slaves of that church. We know about bond slaves. We know about slaves, especially in that culture considered subhuman, not equal with the rest of humanity, bought, purchased for a price by another person to do their bidding. But Paul doesn't see them as slaves, does he? 
Paul doesn't see them as slaves. He sees them as Christians. It was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, all Christians are baptized into the body of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. So he doesn't see the slave in the church. He sees a Christian, and he sees another person that needs to adhere to the instruction of the Lord. This brings us to the bulk of our text, verse 9 through 15. To the Christian, the bond slave, let's read. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you about these things. These things speak confidently. Don't let anyone disregard you about this stuff. These doctrines of the faith. Now that's interesting because a few verses later in chapter 3, Paul seems to change his mind. He says, actually, I want you to avoid foolish arguments I want you to avoid genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Be done with that stuff. Don't do it. This is the church of God. It's unprofitable. Wait a minute, Paul. Are we either supposed to stand up for what we believe? Are we supposed to proclaim this stuff, which you just told us to do, without letting anyone disregard us and with full confidence? Or are we supposed to decline from foolish arguments? Which one is it, Paul? I'm confused. It's both. It's both. There's harmony in what Paul is saying because at first he's talking about two different things. When he's addressing the bond slave and the Christian, saying you need to adorn yourself with doctrine, he's talking about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. The very things that make up the basis of our Christianity, the core of our Christianity, our statement of faith, the things that matter the most, he's saying these things speak and reprove and exhort with all authority. Let no one disregard you about those things. Everything else? Yeah. Key word being foolish argument. It's foolish. Don't divide over that stuff. But the core essentials, you need to lay hold of those. You need to know them. You need to teach them. So the core doctrines of God... It was very sweet of Paul and his exhortation to the bond slaves to, after exhorting them to adorn themselves with doctrine, he then lays out doctrine. I don't know if you picked out some of those key words, but we're going to read this passage one more time. Keep your ears peeled. Just try to listen for key words, doctrines, things that sound familiar. Right after he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Did you guys hear some things in there? <laughs> yeah. What did we hear? The grace of God. Salvation to all men. Denying ungodliness. Denying worldly desires. Looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Knowing that he gave himself. Knowing that he redeemed us. Knowing that he purified us. What do all these things have in common? Salvation. The core essential doctrines of the Christian faith have salvation in common. They are salvific in nature. Now listen. Because salvation hinges upon the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross, when we say salvation, we are implying the person of Jesus Christ in everything that we say. Amen? Amen. So when we talk about salvation, we are implying Jesus Christ and everything that that entails. So essential doctrine of the Christian faith has to do with salvation and it has to do with Jesus Christ. So here's a good litmus test. If you're wondering what an essential doctrine of the faith is, ask yourself this question. If I take away this doctrine, does salvation still work? If this doctrine actually doesn't exist, am I still saved? Is it still possible for me to be saved? Core doctrines are salvific in nature. They have to do with salvation. If I take away this doctrine, does Christianity still make sense? Am I still saved? Y'all tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay, good, because we're going to have a test right now. No, it's good. We need to put the, the Word of God into practice in our lives. But it's okay, because I'm going to start really easy, just for some morale and team spirit. This first one, no one will get wrong. I'm confident that no one will get this wrong. Is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith the cross? Yes. Yes. Why? Because it is the blazing center of God's glory and because we can't get saved without it. Amen? The cross is a core essential of the Christian faith. What about the resurrection? Yes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that without the resurrection, we're still dead in our sins. We're to be pitied above all other men. What about dead in our sins? What about sins? Is that a core doctrine of the Christian faith? Yes. Yes. Without sin, we wouldn't have a need to be saved. And we are all sinners falling short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. What about hell? Core doctrine? Yeah. Wow, you guys are sharp. <laughs> Hell is a core doctrine of the Christian faith that we believe that it exists and it is the wrath of God for Satan and his fallen angels. And unfortunately, those who choose to go there by rejecting salvation, it is a core doctrine. What about tongues and spiritual gifts? No. Why? It doesn't have to do with salvation, right? Now let's be careful. When I say essential doctrine of the faith, I don't mean that other doctrines that aren't essential aren't important. All, bi all biblical doctrine is important. 
We should learn it. We should study it. We should know what the Bible teaches about every single thing in life. But the essentials are the ones that, man, if it comes down to it, we divide over these things. We do not fudge over these things. We do not compromise over these things. I believe that there is a literal hell. And that people are going there if they reject Jesus Christ. We can't, we can't compromise on those things. So tongues isn't a core doctrine. So that might mean that someone over in this section, maybe you're a cessationist and you don't believe in the gifts at all. You're like, the gifts are done, nobody do them, ever. Actually, I'm okay with you. I'm okay with you. We can go to the same church and worship the same king of kings day after day after day, and it's okay. You can have those beliefs about tongues and spiritual gifts, and I'm okay with you. We don't need to divide about those things. Maybe there's someone over on this side that's at the far end of the spectrum. You're like, man, just all the gifts, all the time, everywhere, crazy, 24 hours a day. In fact, no preaching even, just gifts, crazy chaos. <laughs> gifts, gifts, gifts. Actually, I'm okay with you too. You're still my brother and sister in the Lord, and I think we can still go to the same church and worship the King of Kings together. Of course, if you actually do that during worship, maybe you better not do that. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? The, the ones that aren't essential to our faith, we don't need to divide about those things. What about tattoos? <laughs> See a couple people with them just waving their hands. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not a core doctrine of the Christian faith. There could be people in this congregation who hate tattoos. I'm okay with you. We can still worship together and there's people in here that love them. We don't need to divide about such things. What about the deity of Christ? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It required God intervening on our behalf to save us. No human could do that. That, that. that doctrine can't fudge. We can't move it anywhere. Jesus is God. And so it would imply that the Trinity also is a doctrine of the Christian faith, right? Okay. Um... What else? Okay, here's one. What about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father and interceding on our behalf? Yeah, totally. Because the process of salvation, right, is that we're justified. But then we become sanctified by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And it's in that process of sanctification, which, which is still salvation, that the Lord is interceding for us. I don't think we can make it without the Lord interceding for us. So that's a core doctrine, I think. And essential to our faith. It stays there. What about Jesus coming back for us? Yeah. Yes. So that would be the final process of salvation, right? Where we are being, we're being sanctified. We're being made more like Jesus Christ. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he rescues us from this earth. We're glorified. We're made absolutely perfect. 100% in every way. The finalization of our salvation. So that's a core doctrine. It's essential. It stays there. All the other ones, whatever. Whatever, man. We'll live with them. We need, to, we need to be aware of these things and we need to study them. Like I said before, we need to know more than just what the Bible says. We need to know what it teaches and what it stands for. Um... The problem is that deception is coming our way. 
If it hasn't already, you're going to deal with it at some point or another, and it's going to be in the church, and we're going to have to deal with it. That's why we need to know doctrine. If you know the essentials of the Christian faith, you won't be deceived. You remember a few weeks ago, uh, Britt brought up a whole mess of people that are influential in the culture. He brought up Oprah and Chopra and Paget and Bell and all of these people. We don't have anything against these people. I love them. I've never met them before in my life. I don't know who they are or what they do. I have no problem with them. I want them to be saved, and hopefully I get to see them in heaven someday. But what they say is ill. It's theological chaos, and the Bible prescribes that we answer it according to the Word of God. And so that's why we do stuff like that. Um, one more. What about the virgin birth? Yes. Thank you, guys. Yes, the virgin birth is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. In one of, uh, one of Britt's messages, he brought up Rob Bell and his book, The Velvet Elvis. I don't think he mentioned this, but Rob Bell is more than an influential writer. He's actually a pastor of one of the largest churches in the United States. He pastors a congregation of about 10,000 people, and his book is highly influential. And Rob Bell doesn't seem to think that the virgin birth is important. Um, on page, I believe it's 26 of his book, The Velvet Elvis, he actually describes a scenario and says, what would happen if scientists uncovered evidence proving that there was no virgin birth? I still think Christianity would function. I don't think we need it. It's not that important. Listen, friends. We need to know the answers to these things. Here's what happens if, according to Rob Bell, it's just a myth, the virgin birth. If the virgin birth did not exist, one, that would make Mary a liar. She would also be a fornicator. So Mary would be a lying fornicator. Now understand that in first century Judaism, people already had a hard time believing the testimony of a woman. And it was sweet of God to choose a woman to be the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She was one of the first. But it would have been a lot harder for people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ if that woman was a lying fornicator. Oh yeah, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, the Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world. But who wants to believe that Jesus takes away the sins of the world when he's the illegitimate son of a lying fornicator? Jesus had brothers that started churches. Jesus had 12 disciples that went out into the world and spread the gospel. As a result of, you and I got saved, praise God. But now that I think of it, if the virgin birth is a myth, if you take it out, they're just 12 idiots according to the book of Acts. The reason they were so special is because they walked with the Lord. But now they're just 12 illiterate, unlettered men who believe the sayings of an illegitimate son of a lying fornicator. Second thing. The Old Testament prophesies that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The New Testament affirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. So if the virgin birth is a myth, the Bible lied. And since we believe, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the Bible is inspired by God and inerrant in all that it affirms, that would make God a liar. Who wants to follow a God who gets things wrong? 
Third, this pertains to our salvation. According to Romans 5, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Psalm 52, Psalm 58, we are born with an original inherited sin. Meaning you don't got to sin. You're going to sin, but you don't have to sin. You're born into sin. And God in his sovereignty chose to bypass the seed of man, therefore bypassing the sin of Adam, to give birth to an unblemished, spotless lamb of God. But if there's no virgin birth, Jesus is with sin, and he can't atone for yours. So here's what we lose when we lose the virgin birth. We lose the credibility of Jesus. We lose the credibility of the Bible. We lose your salvation. See why we need to know these things? We need to be on it. Scripture is clear in what it teaches. Scripture teaches many things. We need to know exactly what it teaches. That's called theology. Study of who God is as pertains to his word. The results that we come to are called doctrines. And the essentials we can't move on. Rob Bell continues to describe the problem by labeling what we view theology as a brick wall. He calls it brickianity. This is lingo. Brickianity meaning we see doctrine or we see theology as a brick wall and our doctrines like the Trinity and the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the cross and the resurrection are like bricks in the wall. They don't move. They don't flex. They don't come out. You can't move them around. They're just rigid and he can't stand that. He describes theology more in his language as a trampoline. He says, to me, theology is like a trampoline. It bounces, it moves around. What's more, the, the springs, which are like doctrines, they flex, they bend, they move. You could actually take a few out, and the trampoline still functions. Pastor of one of the largest churches in America. You can take a doctrine out, and he does in the book, the Trinity, the Virgin Birth, you can actually take the doctrines out and they still function as Christianity. I'm not sure where Rob Bell missed this in his clever analogy, but I've been on a trampoline, man. <clears throat> 27, I've been on a few trampolines. I've actually been on a trampoline that was missing springs. The reason it functions is because those springs are connected to a solid metal frame that does not move. That solid metal frame is situated on the ground, which last time I checked is still there. Theology doesn't function that way. The truth that God describes to us in his word is timeless, and it is for all time. It is for all people. We need to understand what it says. We need to know what it says, church. There will be a time and there is a time and there has been times and there will be more times where people will come to me in despair at the end of their road, at the end of their life, not knowing what to do. It could be something so small as a high schooler in the youth group who broke up with their girlfriend. And for them, their whole world is crushed because they didn't follow the Lord. They've been following this love relationship their entire life. And so when you took that out, their whole world is in despair. And they'll come to me in tears in their eyes saying, what do I do now? What do I do now, Chris? I need something. 
And what am I going to give them? What answers am I going to give that student? What's going to happen when a kid comes up to me and they do? At the end of their road, in utter despair, slashing their wrists with razor blades. Do you know that kids do that in our community and even in our church? Slashing their wrists with razor blades because no one will listen to their pleas. And when they come running to me and when they come running to you, what are we going to give these people? Jesus. When my future wife comes to me and asks questions based off things like finances, if the situation arises where we don't know how we're going to pay a single bill, where we don't know how we're going to put food on the table or what we're going to do, where the next check is going to come from, I want to be able to say to my bride, God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I believe it. I've read it in the word. I've seen his faithfulness in the past, in the present, and I believe it'll come in the future. I've had no reason to doubt him. A time is coming, not just for me, but for you, when you will encounter the lost. And there will be situations where that person is on the verge of eternity. And your very words could steer them into heaven or into hell. You better have a lot more than just a trampoline in your speculation. You better have the brick wall of the truthfulness of the word of God to give these people. And it is true that the world is dying without Jesus Christ. And here we are. We need to know more than just John 3.16 where we are able to find it. We need to know more than just what the Bible says. And I think the Lord has blessed this church so much. So blessed to be a part of this congregation because we're already students of the word. We're already cracking these things open and reading them day in and day out. I love it. And I think that it's because of that reason and because of the Lord's presence in this church that we can just take it to the next level. And so getting past what the Bible just says, let's learn what it teaches and what it means. If you don't know where to start, I highly recommend that you turn to Romans chapters 1 through 8 and you just start there. Paul lays out the entire gospel for newbies. The entire gospel from the beginning, justification to glorification, everything in between, every doctrine you could possibly know for the rest of your life. And I think you should read it for the rest of your life every day. Martin Luther spoke about the book of Romans. He said, not only should you read it every day, but you should have every word memorized through the book of Romans because it is a power of God. Just as Paul says, he's not ashamed of it. It is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, both Jew and Greek. So Christian, I implore you, by the blood of Jesus Christ, which has saved you already, the world around you in your workplace in your schools, in your hangouts, maybe even in your home. They are in despair, they have no hope, and they are lost, and they are going to hell. And this sounds so cliche to say, but it's true. You may be the only Bible that they ever read. So let's fill ourselves with the Word of God. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise you, Lord.
All glory and honor and praise to your name, Jesus. We ask, Lord, for a spiritual awakening in this church. We ask for a revival of the sort that we would be more passionate about your name, but Lord, more than just passion, we want to be in practice of that passion. We ask, Lord, that now as we step out in faith and we open up your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit who authored it in the first place, that you would guide us into all truth. We know that you have given us truth and you were so kind to preserve it for thousands of years, to put it up a level above any other piece of literature and book. It is the unique word of God and it contains the gospel. Lord, that we would understand it and that we would know it. Let us be a church that understands the gospel and understands the truth therein. We want to go out from this place, out of our subculture and out of our Christian bubble to minister the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost. We believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will be equipped to do such. I ask that you would send us, that you would fill us right now. In Jesus' name.